This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in once again today. Hey, joining me today in segments two and three of the program, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a returning guest on the program, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about the future of medical care and Medicare. As we're entering the new political cycle, we have a number of candidates talking about Medicare for All, and we're going to talk to Carl about the economics of all those promises and potential new programs, and uh, you might be surprised to learn what the reality is when you're looking at this from purely a dollars and cents standpoint. In this first segment today, I want to talk to you a bit about interest rates. In fact, if I were to title this segment, I would title it, Why You Should Care About Interest Rates. And it really goes a little bit deeper than if you're borrowing or you're carrying debt, you want to have interest rates obviously lower. And if you're depositing, you're putting money in time deposits of some type, like a CD, Obviously, you would like to have interest rates be higher. But again, it does go deeper than that. And this past week, Larry Kudlow, who is a top Trump economic advisor, uh, said that he expects that interest rates may never again go up in his lifetime. And I'm going to give you a bit from an article that I found on Zero Hedge. This is dated uh, April 11th, actually. Almost five years ago, in May of 2014, when he was setting the scene for the biggest asset bubble trap in history, trap because his own policies made it impossible to undo the Fed's monetary policies without bringing the entire financial system crashing down, Bernanke, referring obviously to Ben Bernanke, the former Federal Reserve chair, Bernanke uttered what was very unwitting gallows humor when he said that he does not expect the Fed's interest rate to rise back to its 4% average during his lifetime. Now, in retrospect, he was right because just a few years later, with the Fed funds rate at 2.5%, the Fed realized that any further hikes would crash the market, which was already on the verge of a bear market, And as a result, Fed Chair Powell, who is the current Federal Reserve Board chairperson, Fed Chair Powell put the Fed's rate hike strategy on hold. Now, five years after Bernanke's infamous statement, Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, has done Bernanke one better. And during an event in Washington, said that he does not think that rates will ever go up again. Maybe never again in my lifetime, to quote Mr. Kudlow exactly. Now, as a side note, I have put together a piece many years ago. I titled the piece 26 Reasons to Ignore the Experts for Reasons that Will Become Obvious Momentarily. But Mr. Kudlow formerly served as a CNBC financial show host. And back in 2000, Mr. Kudlow, as the stock market started to correct, as the tech stock bubble started to unwind, 
Mr. Kudlow said this correction will run its course until the middle of the year. Not even Greenspan can stop the Internet economy. So Mr. Kudlow, at the beginning of the market correction, said this will be temporary. History obviously proves that Mr. Kudlow was mistaken. And in June of 2002, just a couple years later, Mr. Kudlow said this, The shock therapy of a decisive war will elevate the stock market by a couple thousand points with Dow 35,000 by 2010. That, as you all know, did not happen either. So Mr. Kudlow's forecasting track record is not stellar, but I digress. See, interest rates are set by the Federal Reserve, not by Mr. Kudlow, not by an administration. And the Federal Reserve, for those of you that may not be aware of this fact, and it's surprising to me how many people are not aware of this fact, the Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers. And back in 1913, almost 106 years ago this December, Congress and then-President Woodrow Wilson thought it would be a good idea to put private bankers in charge of determining U.S. monetary policy. Now, interest rates are set by the Federal Reserve. Now, why is this important for you, and why is it important for you to know? Well, simply put, interest rates strongly influence, I would even say, usually dictate money supply. See, we operate in what is known as a fractionalized reserve banking system, and interest rates are key to how money moves around our economy. Now, current bank reserving rules are 10%. That means if you go put $10,000 into your bank, your banker has to reserve 10% or $1,000, and the other $9,000 can be loaned out. This process can continue with money moving from one bank to the next, and just by the very process of money moving, more money is created. According to the New York Federal Reserve Bank website, a $10,000 deposit can turn into $100,000 if money is moving at full capacity. So I go put $10,000 in my bank, my banker reserves $1,000, loans out $9,000 to someone who wants to buy a used car. The buyer of that used car takes the $9,000 that she borrowed from the bank to the car dealer. The car dealer deposits $9,000 in his bank account. That banker reserves $900, loans out the other $8,100. And this process continues. Now, when interest rates are low, it's a lot more attractive for people to borrow money. So the lower the interest rates are, the more likely it is that money will move and the more likely it is that more money will be created and more money has to go somewhere. And history teaches us that typically goes into stocks and real estate. That's why there's such insistence on keeping interest rates low as the stock market faltered earlier this year. Now, if interest rates are higher, people are not as eager to borrow money, and the whole movement of money slows down. Now, let me give you just a bit of recent history. Some of you may be old enough to remember where interest rates were in the early 80s. It wasn't unusual at that time to get in the high teens as a, an interest rate on a time deposit like a CD. Well, interest rates 
actually were raised to that level by then Federal Reserve Bank Chair Paul Volcker, who said, we've got to get inflation under control, and the way we're going to do it is to raise interest rates. We're going to raise interest rates to such a level that nobody will want to borrow money. That meant that the movement of money slowed down, arguably almost stopped, the money supply contracted, and inflation was brought under control. Now, inflation is simply an expansion of the money supply. Deflation is a contraction of the money supply. And as we'll talk about in the last segment of today's program, this is dramatically affecting the real estate market as well. Well, if you look at recent history, after the stock market crashed as a result of the tech stocks unwinding, Greenspan dropped interest rates to less than 1%. Money was created. It went into stocks and real estate. Stocks and real estate crashed in 2008. Then Chair Ben Bernanke dropped interest rates to zero, but nothing happened, so he engaged in a program of quantitative easing, and that's the way in which we're headed. Now, we have additional resources on our website for those of you that would like to protect yourselves from the effects of inflation and deflation as these boom and bust cycles inevitably build and burst. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and get more information. I'll be back with Carl Denninger after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. I am pleased to have, as a returning guest on RLA Radio, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is one of the most prolific bloggers uh, on all things economic, political, and uh, other things as well. Uh, I would encourage you to check out his blog at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. And, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on. So, Carl, I was reading an article, in fact, just this morning before recording this, about how uh, Bernie Sanders is going to go after the greedy drug companies. And, uh, of course, my fear is that whenever you put the government in charge of something, it gets more expensive and less efficient. So uh, he cited specifically uh, the profits made by uh, the manufacturers of insulin. Uh, And I know we've chatted about this in the past, but it's been a while. So uh, what's your comment? Well, I think that there's, you know, Bernie, like so many politicians, uh, plays to his audience. And while 
he has this, you know, brilliant idea in the general sense. Okay, um, although profit is not bad, profit is what drives people to decide to do things. What you've really got when it comes to insulin and, and every other area of medical care in the United States is racketeering. You don't. What's what's the answer to racketeering? You lock people up. You throw them in jail. It's against the law. And yet nobody's talking about that. You know, the Bernie's idea is, well, we need to have Medicare for everybody. We need to have more socialized medicine. We need to uh, you know, do this and that. The answer to the problem is found in laws that have existed for more than 100 years. And it's 15 United States Code, Chapter 1, which says that any attempt to monopolize, restrain trade, or fix prices is a federal felony. So why why do we need to do anything other than start enforcing the law that already exists? The the insulin makers, it, it, insulin is not a drug that's on patent. Okay, insulin's a drug that's existed long past its its patentable lifetime. So why is it that insulin's expensive? It should be as cheap as a can of beer, but it's not. And the reason is that you have institutions, organizations that conspire together to limit supply, to take older formulas off the market, replace them with new ones that they that they have patented. Well, why aren't the old ones being manufactured? There's nothing wrong with them. They work perfectly well. They kept diabetics alive for decades. So, Kyle, when you talk about racketeering, when you talk about uh, not enforcing existing laws, uh, that's probably going to sound a little bit maybe extreme to some of our listeners. Let's dig into that a little bit. Um, what exactly or how exactly are these laws that, that exist uh, being violated? And then secondly, why are they not being enforced? Well, let's just, let's just take one example. Um, in the state of Michigan, you have no-fault auto insurance, which was put in place in the 1970s to try to stop the lawsuit lottery. In other words, you get hit in a car accident, and everyone sues everybody to see if they can manage to find a million dollars somewhere. Uh, and it did that. It stopped that essentially cold. At the time, it did not do much to auto insurance rates because the lawsuit lottery was a big part of your auto insurance cost. But what's happened now is that if you get in a car accident in the state of Michigan, the MRI that you need to have to determine whether there's something wrong with your neck or your back or, or whatever uh, is three to five times the price of the same MRI if it's ordered because you sprained whatever or twisted whatever walking your dog. Now, this is against the law. This is felony to do this kind of thing. It is also illegal to conspire with other people to fix prices, and all the insurance companies and hospitals have gag clauses in their contracts. So you cannot find out what you have as an actual cost, what the insurance company is actually paying for a procedure. All you know is what your copay is. But you also don't know whether Joe, who is flat on his back with the exact same malady that you have in the next bed over in the same hospital room, is, is his insurance company paying the same as your insurance company? Are you paying the same out-of-pocket? There's no way for you to find out because these firms have all gagged this and put it under what they call, you know, what they claim is a some kind of commercial privilege. Well, it's not. And conspiracy to fix prices is a felony. It's been a felony for more than 100 years. And yet you won't find anyone that will prosecute any of these crimes. These are These are not minor little issues. If you could call up your doctor or your hospital and say, I need to have my gallbladder removed. 
how much is it going to cost and get an actual price, uh, there wouldn't be a problem. And price of medicine would collapse by 80% in the United States in a day. We employ in this country over 600,000 people in the so-called medical industry that never provide a single second of care to a single person. Their entire purpose in life is to shuffle paper around and screw people by differentially charging one person versus another. And, and these, these are all people that it's all overhead. You pay for it. There's, and nobody works for free. So, Carl, when how do we how do we get the message out? Is there is there any movement anywhere to try to fix this? Because, as you and I both know, the the more the government gets involved, the less efficient it's going to be. One only needs to look at the fact that you know privatizing Social Security would at least probably have some money in the trust fund. Now we have nothing. I mean, there's example after example after example. So, is there any movement afoot out there that that you can see that uh, you know will, will turn the tide? No, none. And and look, you know, you brought up Social Security, which is an interesting, which is an interesting aspect of this. The politicians always like to say we need to reform entitlements. Okay, and what they're talking about, they're 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 talking about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid as a basket. Okay, Social Security currently runs about eleven percent cash flow deficit. In other words, if you take the the taxes that come in with FICA taxes, and you look at what goes out in Social Security payments, about eleven percent. Is the, is the deficit, and it, it varies from month to month a little bit, but that's that's roughly where it is. You could take the Social Security tax from 6.2%, of course, that's half, right? Because there's the other half that your employer pays. Take it to about 7%, or you could raise the cap or some combination of the two. Um, and remember, if you raise the cap by $10,000, that would be the same as another person being employed that makes 10 grand a year, because you know, that's just how the math works, right? There aren't that many rich people, but you're adding a huge base into this. Any combination of those things, or by the way, just attack some of the fraud in the disability system, which is insane. It's off the, it's off the charts. And it, the, the number of people that are supposedly disabled has more than doubled since President Obama took office. Now, if you believe that those are real disabilities, I have a bridge to sell you somewhere. Uh, if you did any set of that, Social Security would be perfectly fine. Medicare, the, la- the first five months of this year, ran almost a 66% cash deficit. Medicaid, of course, is 100% because there's no tax that funds Medicaid. So in order to fix Medicare, you would have to more than triple the tax rate, which is obviously never, ever politically going to happen. In order to bring Medicaid into the budget and actually pay for it, you'd have to multiply the Medicare tax rate by somewhere between six and ten times what it is today. That is not going to happen. It's impossible. It's impossible politically, and if you did it, you'd collapse the economy in an afternoon. So this is where the entire federal deficit comes from. If you look at these numbers over the space of the last ten years – the $10 trillion worth of debt that we've put on in this country since Obama was elected has all come from this in one place. Approximately $4 in five of the $3 trillion, $4 trillion a year that is spent on medical care in the United States is stolen through these schemes. That's just from one program. If we do not solve this by 2024, on, on current projections, 
By the way, this date's been coming in. It was 2028 a few years ago. By 2024, the, the bonds that are held by Medicare that are currently being cashed that allow this program to continue to, to present itself as having some solvency are going to run out. And when they do, the federal deficit is going to double in an afternoon. Well, and Kyle, when you look at the deficit, I, I just read a piece that, uh, you know, under Obama, the, the deficit increased, I think, at an average rate of $112 billion a year. Now, under Trump, it's $200 billion a year. And, you know, it's, it's really points right back to this. And you're saying then that 2024 is the, that's when the day of reckoning starts. Well, it may be before then, because it, you have to remember two things. One is that these estimates are always hopelessly optimistic because they, they count on several things. The current economic growth rates being maintained, no recessions. Okay. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's fanciful, right? I mean, there's, you know, recessions on average occur every, every six to 10 years. And so if you have a recession, then you're going to have firings. People are going to end up on Medicaid because they lose their jobs, they lose their health insurance. So the, the, the budgetary impact will accelerate. Um, a few years ago, this was supposedly a 2028 to 2032 problem. Now it's a 2024 problem. Um, we're close enough now that, that odds are won't move all that much closer. So maybe 2022. But then the other thing that goes with this is that the market never let you hit these walls. It didn't let it happen in 2007. And it isn't going to happen this time. There's just no way to know precisely when people wake up to this in the markets and throw up all over it and say, absolutely not. This is going to collapse the federal budget and, and state and, and local budgets as well. We're not going to play anymore. And the market goes down 7,000 points. Carl, it seems like when you look at these numbers, the politicians uh, either have to cut spending or the Fed has to print more money. I mean, you the, the whole idea of a, a wealth tax, uh, I've, I've been chatting about here on the program, I and mean, we could confiscate uh, every bit of net worth of every billionaire in the United States, and we run the government for less than a year. So, I mean, do you see that as a as a policy response that, that the Fed's going to end up printing money, there's going to be pressure to do that, and then that leads to its you know its own set of problems? Well, you can't print money. I really wish people would stop saying that. You, you can print credit, but you can't print money. Money is what you obtain by providing something of value. You can't print gallbladder operations. You can't print cars. You can't print televisions. You can't print internet service. You, 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 you can't print those things. You yeah, can absolutely, print technically, credit. absolutely right. Sure, sure. Well, right. But see, here's the thing. If you print credit, what, what happens when you print credit? Printing credit is is obligating someone else to produce something in the future to make it good. That's what it is. So what happens when the doctor says, oh, no. And see, that's, that's the thing. People say, well, you know, the, the risk to this is that down the road there'll be inflation. Excuse me? The, down the road there will be inflation? What's happened to medical expenses over the last 10 years? Yeah, great point. All right, down the road? They've more than doubled. And, and you're talking to me about there's no inflation. Where? Um, how about asset prices? You, you can't control where the inflation shows up, but it's going to happen. It happens immediately as soon as you emit the credit. So might the Fed try something like this? Well, they can try, but it isn't going to do anything because the problem isn't that you have a lack of supply of credit in the economy. 
The problem is that you have a system that is extortionate, that is stealing the value from people who produce and giving it to people who produce nothing and doing it as a means of jacking their stock prices and keeping the equity markets elevated along with employing a bunch of people who are doing nothing of value at all. Right? You know, there's, there was the old thing about the Soviet Union in that they, they, everybody had a job, but your job might be digging a hole and filling it back in. What, what does that do for the common benefit of society? And obviously the answer is nothing. Well, what happens here? Okay, if you, if you start emitting more and more credit, which the Federal Reserve has done, and now they've said, look, we can't, you know, we can't take back what we did in 2008 because if we do, the market will crash. Well, so what you're basically saying is, is that the extraction from people's wallets that was 15% of the economy for healthcare at the time, now it's 20. It has to be maintained at 20 because it goes back to 15, the market crashes. And this is not the only place, of course, that this is happening, but it's one of them. Well, we are chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. His blog can be found at market-ticker.org. And I will continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Glad you're with us today. My name is Dennis Tubergen. I am the host of RLA Radio. Uh, joining me on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. If you're just joining us, I would encourage you to check out his blog at market-ticker.org. And uh, Carl, you made a really interesting point at the end of the last segment. I'd like to jump in again here. You, you made the point that you really don't print money. You, you, you create or print credit. Um, and that obligates someone to produce something in the future. So with that as a springboard, Give me your take on this whole notion, this, 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 this crazy notion of modern monetary theory. I think Stephanie Kelton is uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, economic advisor, and she is proposing that we don't have to worry about deficits because we can just create more currency. What's your take? Well, go ahead and create it. But again, it's not actually current. You know, again, what we come down to is the same issue. Okay, and and I don't know where these people get this idea. I think this is it is a a massive sense of curve fitting, and that they want a particular result, and so they twist around language and reality to get there. I don't think any of these people actually believe what they're talking about. I I 
I can't imagine it. I had a debate with one of these folks uh, back when Lauren Lister was on RT. She did a segment with me, and they had one of the big proponents of MMT at the time. This was maybe seven or eight years ago. And and he was going on and on about how the government can emit as much currency as you want, and it, and you know the prices that maybe there might be some inflation down the road. But other than that, there's really no problem with doing this. And you know he he prattled on for a while, and Lauren asked me what I thought about this. And I took a twenty dollar bill out of my wallet, and I tore it in half, and I said, "Look, you have two twenties." <laughs> and, and there was this stunned silence. <laughs> okay, and, you know, and everybody who watched it at, at the time, I circulated it because it was a you know it was a YouTube clip that they put up, and and that was pretty much the end of the debate right there. I mean, Laura just had had this kind of slack jawed look on her face, like uh, I mean, you know, the light went on immediately, right? And and the thing is, is that that's that's the problem. Is I I think these people know that they're peddling snake oil and it'll never work. Now, can you get away with it for a while? Yes, you can. And that's what makes it so attractive to people like this. You look at the, you know, what's happened here since the 2008 stock market crash, which was triggered by a tiny little piece of the economy. But did anybody really think that if you had $50,000 in income that you could buy a half million dollar house? Yeah, great. There were yeah. people here. Well, there were people in this town here that had $3 million homes out and mortgages on all of them and made less than hundred grand a year. How could you possibly ever make the economics work on that? And the, and the answer, of course, is you can't, but this is what they were doing. And, and so you say, well, you know, but that guy obviously lied. Well, no kidding. The bank knew he lied. No kidding. They sold those bonds off to people that they knew were fraudulently issued. No kidding. And then when it all blew up in everyone's face, nobody went to jail. The guy that borrowed the money didn't go to jail. The bankers didn't go to jail. The people that underwrote the deals didn't go to jail. The people that sold the securities didn't go to jail. Nobody went to jail. Well, why wouldn't you do it again? All right. So, I mean, we have the same kind of thing going on now. We have, you know, we have the politicians peddling this nonsense. They know it's a fraud, but nobody's going to go to jail. You have the same thing going on in the medical system today, but nobody goes to jail. And, and, you know, I mean, just look at all the all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world right now. You got that you have a, a celebrity lawyer that just got arrested, supposedly for trying to extort Nike. OK. And another guy who's another celebrity lawyer who is an unnamed co-conspirator in the indictment. But the Wall Street Journal leaked his name. And so, you know, where do you get the idea you can get away with this kind of thing? And the answer is uh, nobody goes to jail. <laughs> okay. I mean, if, if I walk into a bank and stick it up, uh, I, I go to jail. But as soon as you have a little power, a little political pull, it, it doesn't matter what you do. Carl, let me, uh, let me go back to something you said in the last segment that kind of uh, caught my attention. Um, did you say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought you said that healthcare consumes now 20% of GDP. Is that, is that what, is that the quote I heard you, you throw out there? A number that, that it's very close. There? It's yeah, it's 19 and change it, at my last look. It may actually be 20 at this point. It's been increasing on a, a you know, pretty uh, consistent basis for quite some time in the 1960s, by the way, in seventies, it was about 4%. So, Kyle, when you look at that over a 40- or 50-year time frame, and it's gone uh, essentially, what, four to five times, let's just say, I mean, just, just huge, obviously that trajectory, to use that word, cannot continue. So when this crashes, what does it look like? 
Well, I, I, this I will say to everybody that's listening. If you are in any way dependent upon the medical system to survive, you'd better stop that. If it's possible for you to change that, you'd better change it and you better do it now because the amount of time you have to do that is very close, you know, very close to getting to zero. Uh, if, if you are overweight or obese, if you are insulin compromised, if you're diabetic, type 2 diabetic, type 1, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you're type 2 diabetic, if you, are, if you have any sort of chronic condition that's linked to any sort of lifestyle issue, you'd better fix it. And it, it, you don't have time to screw around with this. You can't do it with medication. You have to change what you do. And the easiest way to do that, if any of it is linked to, to being overweight or obese, is to get the carbohydrates out of your diet, all of them except for green vegetables. Do it right now and keep them out. Because if you don't, and this comes apart the way I expect it to, you're going to be severely debilitated or die, and it's going to be a very bad way to go. So when you say as you expect it to, give us a broad picture. How do you see it playing out? Do you see hospitals going out of business, doctors getting out of practice? What does this look like? Well, by law, Medicare cannot spend money it doesn't have. And it is currently running a roughly two-thirds, roughly 66% cash flow operating deficit, which means two out of every $3 of alleged Medicare spending stops instantly. Now, that's not going to happen. Congress, <laughs> Congress will pass an emergency bill to fund it on the back of the, of the general budget if that occurs. And it will occur, by the way, at current trends in 2024. Okay? But if that happens... The odds of us being able to, at, at this point, um, on current trends, that would be approximately a an additional trillion dollars in deficits that would show up overnight. So we would go from a little over trillion dollar deficit that we're expected to have this year to over two trillion. And six years from now, um, that's likely to be somewhere between a trillion and a trillion and a half. So you could see the federal budget situation turn into one where we are running somewhere in the neighborhood of a eight to 12% federal deficit on a cash basis immediately. And anyone that thinks that, th that the bond market is just gonna sit there and allow that to happen has rocks in their head. So at that point, you're going to have severe rationing. You're going to have a collapse of the, of the medical system as it's currently constructed. Now, what you end up with out of that on the other side of it, I have no clue, but the disruption's real and the, the obvious place that they will go after is the most expensive ones because that's where the money is. Yeah, well, let's shift gears a minute, Carl. We've got uh, maybe three and a half minutes left in this segment. Uh, give me your assessment of the health of the U.S. economy presently. It's running on heroin at the moment and approaching the coffin corner where you, you're going to have to either cut back and detox or you're going to die from an overdose. Uh, the idea that the Federal Reserve has to stop its its balance sheet runoff and all of the crazy things that they did in 2008, 2009, and leave things here uh, means that the next time that there is any kind of economic shock, and there's, there's only about 100 different things that could set it off, there's very little that the Fed can do or the federal government can do from a policy perspective to try to mitigate that. So I, I, the odds of us having some kind of a significant black swan sort of event over the next two to three years, I believe, is extremely high. 
So, Kyle, if someone's listening to this, they've got money in an IRA, they've got money in a 401k, they're concerned about, uh, you know, they've dreamt about this secure, stress-free retirement. Um, obviously, based on what you're saying, the stock and bond markets don't look that attractive. So what do they do? Well, I, I, I mean, cash is, is always good at a point, as long as it's worth something. Um, if it's not, then you better be thinking about other sorts of assets. And, you know, we're not talking about gold. Yeah, okay. So um, do you see uh, the stock market correction as far as timing goes on all this? Uh, how do you think this plays into the 2020 election, which is a, a complete interview in and of itself? I think there's uh, there are plenty of people who would love to see the market crash in the months leading up to the election because it would damage Trump. Okay, I mean, Trump has, has essentially made the Dow Jones Industrial his report card on his presidency, which is an incredibly stupid thing to do for a president, but it's what he's done. And so there are plenty of people who would like to see the rug get pulled out, but I don't think this is under anyone's individual control. This is, this is a situation where Trump took a bunch of, of actions that in the short term looked okay, like the tax cuts, but all they did was add more heroin to the, to the patient. And and now the question becomes, how far do we get? You know, do we get through the 2020 election before the inevitable overhang comes and gets us? And I I would say that it's 50 50 that we get through there. But I would be extraordinarily careful in anything that's dangerous, especially anything that's got a high P.E. or doesn't actually have earnings behind it. Well, and there's certainly a lot of that and a lot of what we've seen as far as. Uh, stock prices going up. I mean, there's just a huge amount of companies buying back their own stock, and that's you know that that's a finite type action as well. Um, so, do you ultimately have a prediction of, of where the market might end up? Could we be looking at a you know a, an, an eighty to ninety percent decline like we saw ninety years ago? Oh, I, I you know I've had on my blog um, where I think the real ultimate bottom is. It's it's on the headline. Um, yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I, I have SPX two ten point two three. Okay, that's the S and P five hundred. Um, could wow. you end up there? Sure, and and uh, that's just the reality of it. Is that the vast majority of this so called recovery from the six 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 low uh, has all been monetary and, and economic heroin? It's not actual growth. When you buy back stock, you magnify earnings per share. But you also, when there's a downturn, you also magnify losses by the exact same amount. And people keep forgetting that. Yeah, that's a great point. We're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His blog can be found at market-ticker.org. And, Carl, thanks for joining us today. I always enjoy your perspective and uh, love to have you back a little sooner this time. Anytime. Take care. We will be back after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, 
rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and I want to once again extend uh, my thanks to our special guest expert today, Mr. Carl Denninger, for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to Carl. Always learn something. Hope you did, too. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that Larry Kudlow, who is a former CNBC financial show host and commentator, now an economic advisor to the current administration, said that he believes that interest rates perhaps will not go up again in his lifetime. Now, presumably, Mr. Kudlow is healthy, and assuming that he is, that is a rather bold statement. Because whenever you look at how interest rates have been set historically, And as I mentioned in the first segment, interest rates are set by the Federal Reserve, which is a private group of bankers. And in our fractionalized reserve banking system, if interest rates are lower and money moves faster, more money is created. And if interest rates go up and the movement of money slows down, then you see the money supply contract and inflation subsides. And if the money supply contracts too much, you get deflation. So if you go back and take a look at these boom cycles and bust cycles that have existed historically because of the way the Fed sets interest rates, because interest rates, again, significantly influence the money supply. And I am not a trained economist. However, I do look at this from a common sense perspective and think you would be wise to do the same. Here's the common sense perspective. When money is created, it has to go somewhere. When money is created, it's going to end up somewhere. It's going to find a home. And history tells us when money is created, it finds a home in stocks and it finds a home in real estate. So let's just go back and look at what happened in the mid-90s. Then Federal Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan, a guy you've all undoubtedly heard of, reduced interest rates, and the result was money was created and it went largely into tech stocks. From 2000 to 2002, the stock market unwound. That was the bust phase of the cycle. And as tech stocks unwound, Mr. Greenspan dropped interest rates to under 1%. That again got money moving, which meant more money was created That money went into stocks and real estate, and in 2008, both stocks and real estate had finished unwinding to complete the bust phase of the cycle. Then, in 2008, then Federal Reserve Board Chair Ben Bernanke dropped interest rates to 0%. And what happened? Nothing. Because debt levels in the economy were too high for us to collectively go out and take on more debt. And that's the key. When you have too much debt in the private sector, reducing interest rates won't necessarily work. 
So Mr. Bernanke, who got the nickname Helicopter Ben as a result, decided to print money. Now, as my last guest, Mr. Carl Denninger, pointed out, it's not really printing money, it's expanding credit, but it has the same effect because money and credit spend exactly the same way. So there was money created out of thin air, and it has created what I believe is now another boom part of the cycle. Now, whenever you hear the phrase, this time is different, I think it should be an alarm bell that things are about to potentially dramatically change. When you hear the phrase, this time is different, it might mean that we are actually approaching the bust phase of the cycle. Now, there was a book written with that title, This Time is Different. The book was written by Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Roghoff, and they studied 800 years of monetary history, and it seemed that whenever the phrase, this time is different, was used, a bust was imminent. So could that be the case this time? Because the book's premise is that every time certain policies were engaged in, the policymakers at the time would justify their actions by saying, yes, but this time is different. We know what happened last time, but this time is different. Well, if you take a look at what's going on in the real estate market now, we're hearing the phrase, this time is different. Now, there's a company called CoreLogic, and CoreLogic's business is selling and reporting data on housing, or the housing economy, I should say. So they're going to be a uh, really pro-real estate in their bias, and we all have a bias, and that's fine. CoreLogic says that there is a lot of house flipping going on. In fact, here is a statistic from CoreLogic. 10.6% of homes sold in the United States in the fourth quarter of 2018 were flips. Now, how does that compare to prior to the financial crisis? Well, it's the second highest percentage of flips as a percentage of all houses sold in the last 20 years. It was only higher in 2006, just prior to the real estate market collapse, when 11.3% of homes sold were flips. So presently, fourth quarter of 2018, 10.6% of homes sold were flips. 2006, the first quarter, 11.3% of homes were flipped. Were flips, rather. So we're getting very close to that number. Now, CoreLogic tells us that this time is different. And here's why. Because the trades presently are more than twice as profitable as the flips made in 2006. CoreLogic reasons that that offers current flippers more of a cushion if home prices begin to flatten or fall. They also go on to comment that this time around, the market is dominated by professionals, most of whom are purchasing older homes that likely need work, which appeals to buyers' desire for move-in ready homes rather than one needing a lot of renovations. CoreLogic's deputy chief economist, Ralph McLaughlin, said, flippers are very different today than where they were in the past. Now, I'm sure all that is true, but here's my point. A serious drop in home prices would leave these flippers, 
like the flippers of 13 years ago, in a difficult position, probably even at risk of default, since most need to recoup their capital in the short term to pay off bridge loans they're using to finance their flips. If you have real estate, if you have stocks, if you have assets where this created money typically goes, we would advise you to consider using the two-bucket approach. We do educational events around the area uh, and have more resources available on our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my program for this week. Tune in again next week.